My guest today, Elizabeth Gilbert, is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Eat, Pray, Love, Big Magic, City of Girls, and a whole bunch of other awesome books. She is also just a straight up, cool, genuine, wise, deeply feeling human being with a lens on life that is incredibly kind and real. Since her last appearance on the podcast, Liz's life has gone in a lot of different directions. In fact, it's been turned upside down and back again. She's navigated profound awakening, unbelievable love, loss, transition, reclamation, and along the way, really continues this practice of finding her way back into the light, of reimagining what this life is really all about, and then committing herself wholeheartedly without judgment or expectation or really concern about what other people think to stepping into the way that she wants to be in the world. That is a skill set and a lens that we could all use right now. We explore all of this in detail in today's deeply honest and powerful conversation. So excited to share this best of conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Last time you and I hung out in the studio was uh, four-ish, four or five years ago. It was right around when Big Magic came out. Yeah. And it was interesting because I was reflecting. Because when that episode came out, our audience's response was bonkers. Oh. I was like, this is amazing. Okay, yes, you know, Liz is incredible. She's got a big heart, incredible craft, and like awesome ideas. But there was something else going mm. on, and I got really curious. So I had that episode transcribed. Uh-huh. So I was like, can I actually, I wanted to look at the words yeah. and see what was happening. And there's something that jumped out at me that was so powerful. But it, it was nothing that you said, but it was the transcriber's note. So in brackets... At a minimum of once a minute, there were little square brackets with the word 
laughs. No. <laughs> There's another one. Right? And oh. I was like, okay, so oh. you literally laughed at Every the rate minute. of once a minute. Once a minute. <laughs> that seems like I'm losing my my pacing if it's only once a minute. <laughs> I got to get my game up. Um, oh, that's beautiful. It was amazing. Oh. I was like, this, I, it, it was so telling. Oh. <laughs> like now, I'm, now I can't stop. <laughs> We're going to be like one of those Indian laughing clubs. Right. Um, <laughs> the laughing yoga will start rolling. Um, yeah. Because oh. I, I, was, I was really fascinated. I was like, I wonder if that's part of what mm. it was about. And then I got really curious. I'm like, what allow somebody to be so sort of just unapologetically light. Mm. And it's interesting also because in the intervening years between then and as we sit down in the studio now, mm. a lot has happened in your life. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of dark stuff has happened. I, I think it's weird. My first reflex to that answer that question was you ha also have to allow yourself to be unapologetically dark. Mm. Um, Take and tell me more. Like you have to be fully present for all of it. I don't think you can just take one. I think you have to be willing to feel. Otherwise, what the laughter wouldn't have any, any depth to it. Anything. It would just be a kind of a showy put on. It wouldn't be the laughter of that we feel when we're in relief and as we take a break between catastrophes, <laughs> which is what life is. A lot of life is just taking breaks between catastrophes and being like, oh, whew, whew. <laughs> okay, what's next? What's the next disaster up? But yeah, I, I, that's that's what came to mind. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's um, you need the contrast to know when you're in one place or the other. <laughs> yeah, and you need to, you know, I I I know and love some people who have trouble feeling, and they don't cry as much as I do, but they don't laugh as much as I do either. Mm. And I feel like it's not a good trade to create a kind of protective numbness around you so that you don't have to experience pain also means that you don't get to think that everything is hilarious. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, brackets laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> well, you know, like you have to measure out, like we're going to transcribe this one. Yeah. You have to, it has to be at least 60. At least. So, I'm going right? to try to get it down to 45, 45 <laughs> right. seconds. It's like, turn on the clock. Um, but there's also something, I don't know, when you're really like, when you're really allowing the world to have its way with you, and the experience of life to have its way with you. There's also something intrinsically funny about tragedy and disaster. I mean, gallows humor is a real thing, and and I've experienced it at the bedside of the dying of the love of my life. I've experienced it at funerals. I mean, there's a there's a kind of rueful sort of holy shit. Can you <laughs> can you believe this kind of laughter that 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 also exists? And and I remember a friend of mine who was um who does a lot of work with dying people saying to me, if you can't laugh at death and dying, get out of show business. You know, this is, this is also part of the, the insanity and the mystery of, of human life. It's, it's weird. It's weird and it's funny. It is weird and funny. I mean, it goes, I mean, you all know, the like, you know, like Greek comedy, Greek tragedy, you know, it's, it's tragedy, Yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's all, yeah. it's laugh. It's like brought to the level of farce where yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, like I'm not actually, yeah, now I see it. It's right. like you had to amplify it to that level. Right. Kind of like see like, oh, there is something, there's another level of something I can respond to emotionally here. Yeah. Maybe that could be it. Mm. Very well. Um, all right. So let's talk about the last four years. Um, mm. So last time you were hanging out, um, we were enjoying a great conversation and a new book out. Shortly after your world completely turned upside down in a mm. lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, so you 
came out of a long-term relationship, mm -hmm. went into a relationship with somebody with Raya who you had known for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my best friend in the world was a woman named Raya Elias and she, um, she and I had a 17 year long friendship that by the last five, six years of it had become so important to me. She had become the most important person in my life, mm. which was a complicated thing to know when you're married. And I was married to, I was married to a lovely, wonderful man who I loved, but Rhea had become the only word I could ever use to describe her was my person. She was my person. She was the person I needed, you know, the first phone call in any emergency, the first phone call at any moment of celebration, the one who's, you know, the one who I went through to for guidance, for counsel, for comfort. The one who, when she would say to me, all right, let me break it down for you, Gilbert. I would sit up and listen and do what she said, um, because I knew that she knew me, that she had it right, that she understood life in this, in this very rich and surprising way. And that she would love me even if I did it wrong. <laughs> mm. That sense of great safety that I had with Rhea was this feeling that she's never going to throw me away, you know, and, and she's going to take me exactly as I am. No judgments, only love. And we had each other's backs. We were just, we were vital to each other. And then in, in 2016, she was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic and liver cancer. And within a couple of weeks of that diagnosis, it, it there was something about the jarring horror of that diagnosis that made me unable to not, to not see anymore what I had been not seeing mm. for years, which was like, oh, I'm in love with her. <laughs> oh, that's what I mean by my person. That's what I mean by the most important person in my life. That's what these feelings are. This is, this is love. And, and I couldn't bear to let her go to her grave, not knowing that. And I, I, I saw that the horror that that would create in my life, if I were to not reveal that and she were to go and I would have known that, that I had been given this great, great love of my life and that I had let it go um, out of propriety or fear or, or caution or whatever would make you not speak the truth in that moment. And so I just spoke the truth in that moment and left my marriage. And it was, it was fast and, and decisive and pretty drama free. I mean, it was very obvious to everyone that this is what had to happen now. And then I spent the next 18 months with her. Um, and it, you know, as she said, I, I want you to walk me all the way to the edge of the river. And that's what we did. I walked her right to the edge of the river. Yeah. Um, but you can't go farther than that. No. Um, <laughs> it's interesting, right? So you had known each other for so long and there was this one cataclysmic and catalytic moment mm. um, that kind of awakened you like, oh, there's, there's actually this extra way I feel. And like, yeah. and your choice was, I need to say something now because she needs to know this yeah. in this moment. Did you talk to her about um, why she had never also mm. come to that place and shared how she was feeling about you until that moment? We both had such immaculate boundaries, um, largely because of previous suffering that we didn't want to repeat in our lives. So uh. Rhea, Rhea was gay and I was married. And like many lesbians her age, she had a whole history of stories of being in love with married women and, or being, you know, having the, the bisexual woman choose ultimately to go with the guy and make the safer choice in life. So she had, she had some very heartbreaking stories about, about that. And she had, she was never going to do that again. And I had heartbreaking stories about 
leaving marriage and fidelity was important to me and, and loyalty. And so I was never going to do that. So the boundaries were airtight, you know, and so we just, we just loved each other for years that way, mm. you know, um, until death, you know, which has a way of blowing up paradigms came and made those boundaries just seem absolutely ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And also inhumane and just wrong. You know, it was just, it was, I, the, what I can say about the feeling I had about what it would have done to me to have let Rhea go without ever expressing those feelings. The only way I, I've ever been able to say it is that my soul was appalled by that idea. My mm. soul would have been appalled by that idea. And, and if you're walking around with an appalled soul, you're not well, um, you're not well in yourself and you're not well in the world. And so I, I, I really do feel like it wasn't even a decision. It was just me agreeing with something that was very obvious and had to happen and me allowing it, saying, okay, that's, I, I'm in accordance with this command, this divine command, that this is what now yeah. has to happen. And um, so I just did what I was told by the great mothership in the sky. <laughs> and, um, and, and we got to be together and it was beautiful. Did you expect to hear it back? Uh, she always laughed at telling that part of the story when she would tell that story about me coming to her and saying, and then Lizzie G comes to me and says, do you like me in that way? You know, she said, you sound like a third grader. Do you like, yes, no. Do you like me in that way? And, um, I truly didn't know. Uh, I, I, I knew she had great love for me, but I half expected her to be like, ew, you're, you're like my sister. You're like my best friend. Yuck. But she didn't have that response. She, she said that in that moment. She felt a, that a cage door opened in her heart and a thousand doves flew out. It's just, and then the whole universe came in and every angel entered. It was such a big yes for her and, and such a, such a shock, such a disruptive thing, you know, at the moment that you've been given a death sentence to also be given love. She said, how can I be so happy at this moment? This is the, how can this be the greatest moment of my life? But it is. So it was, it was, it was definitely returned. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting also because, you know, there's this moment of just complete connection and elation, but at the same time, under this, under the context of, wow, there is a terminal illness, Yeah, yeah. you know, that now you've both said, okay, so we're in this together. Yeah. No idea how long it is. You're like, no, I, but no idea what you're going to go through, but committing to saying, like, this is like, we are not just saying yes to each other. We're saying yes to what life is, is going to become, which is going to be really hard yeah. <laughs> in a really short amount of time. Yeah. We were pretty cavalier about it at first, I have to no. say. Rhea was cavalier about it because she'd already died three times because she was a uh, recovered heroin addict. <laughs> and, um, and she used to be very cavalier about death before it got close enough that its terror, its inevitable terror caught her. But, um, but even with that diagnosis, she was, she was, she was such a badass anyway, but she, you know, she used to say like, hey, I died three times already. I, you know, I know it's not so bad. And she had a line in one of her songs, my faith to keep me warm died more times than I was born, you know, and that's, oh, that's, that's truly <laughs> who she, that's truly who she was. So, and, and I think honestly, I have to be very candid. There was a part of Rhea and I, I loved her honesty about this. And this is part of what made her so radical was this ferocious kind of groundbreaking emotional honesty that she had. But she honestly said, when I heard, you know, six months to a year, 
I thought, oh, thank God I get to go. You know, this has been so hard. Life is, and she had a good life, but she also had a hard life. She, you know, she'd been through a lot, but she had cleaned up and she had a good life. But I think even a good life is a hard life. And I think that I was fascinated by that sense that she had of, oh God, there's so much I'm never going to have to worry about again. I never have to worry about whether I have enough money in my retirement account. I don't have to, there's people I never have to see again. There's like hard situations I never have to be in again. I don't have to worry about climate change anymore. I'm not going to be here. Like there was truly some sense of her, of, of a release, of a sense of, oh, I get to, I get to go. Um, and I get to go on my own terms with my own honor, with my, my lover by my side. That's how it began. But by the end, and and what we went through in the end, dying is is no joke, and being with somebody who's dying is no joke, and dying of terminal cancer is not the same as overdosing as a junkie um, in your twenties. You know, there's there was she she was scared, and she was angry, and she was heartbroken, and she was um, she lashed out. I mean, she was she went through everything that everybody who's on the verge of death goes through, unless they're a fully enlightened being, which you know, none of us are. So, um, so, and I went through everything that a caregiver goes through, um, pain, exhaustion, heartbreak, resentment. Um, you know, there was nothing romantic about the the road that we walked, except for that we walked the entire thing together. Yeah. And, and while, I mean, while she is, is saying, okay, so yes, it's horrible, but you know, thank God. You know, like there, mm-hmm. there was a sense of release for her. Mm-hmm. You've lived a different life, and 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 you were, your job was to carry on. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's like you're not experiencing. It's it's a very different thing for you. Yeah, I don't get to go. Yeah. Um, I have to stay here in this veil of tears, that is also a merry-go-round and also a playground and, and also beautiful and also horrible. And, you know, I, I was told something really beautiful by my friend, the novelist, Ann Patchett after Rhea died, but it was, it's one of the really most resonating things that anybody has told me where she said, Rhea belongs to the infinite now. And someday you will too. Someday we all will. And once you do, once you belong to the eternal, to the infinite, you will have literally the rest of eternity to be there and to be in merging with whatever that is and to be with Rhea and to be with all souls. But you just have this tiny little mysterious period of time to be in a human form in life. So embrace that and take it. Don't be in such a hurry to to merge with the infinite that you don't do this, that you don't do this messy, strange, complex life in a human form and, and make sure to re-embrace that and rejoin the world that you belong to as, as somebody who is living. And I thought that was so beautiful, so kind. It also kind of reassured me when she said, don't worry, you'll be, you'll be dead soon too. I was like, oh, good. Then I'll get to hang out with Ray and we'll get to, you know, like, right. soon enough, like soon enough. It's like in the cosmic time. In the cosmic time, it's, like, in, you know, it's in a blink. Yeah. You know, it's an, it's, it's, it's instant that we'll all be there. And, you know, I like to think that we'll all meet up at some soul conference and look back on what we did here and be like, wasn't that weird? Hopefully there's really, <laughs> really good music there. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, Rhea would have come back if there wasn't. Um. <laughs> it's like, knock on the door. Yeah, exactly. Mm, no. 
Um, it's all Muzak, sorry. So, yeah, I had to stay and I've chosen to embrace that and to believe that that my life in a rayless world will find its way to be as beautiful as my life in a ray-filled world was. And that's my creative challenge now is to kind of figure out how to have that be. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you do that? <laughs> Which yeah, I guess, I, I yeah. guess I'm not answering in a universal way. I'm answering yeah, like how? you as an individual, like, yeah. is it in, is it, is it like an intentional process for you or is it just wake up every morning? And it's kind of like, I'm going to figure it out. It's intentional. I mean, I've lived my whole life with a lot of intent and I think that grieving Rhea has been in many ways, the greatest creative challenge of my life. Mm. It's an act of creativity to figure out, I mean, here's, here's what they've given me, you know, like, and I always think of creativity as like working with what you've been given in the most interesting possible way. So when I say they, I mean, whoever's governing this fucking thing, whatever it is, <laughs> here's what they've given me. They were like, here, we're going to give you, you who are always so wary and have places in yourself that are that are so guarded in pain that you've always felt no one can reach. We're going to give you the one person who can reach it, who can soothe you, who can make you feel completely safe and absolutely seen. And now we're going to take that away. So that's an interesting creative challenge. How do I now figure out how to be safe, seen, loved, and joyful when the person who provided that's gone? And instead of me doing the, how dare you take her from me, which I did do. I mean, that's part of grieving, you know, and I had a long list of complaints to the universe about that. <laughs> I, was like, I had a long list of other people who I would have been very happy to see die. And I was like, you took that one. You took that one. It's you like took your alternate that <laughs> one. Like I will trade you literally all of them for that one, you know, but that's not how it works. We don't get that vote. We don't get that vote. And no one ever has gotten that vote. No one gets to, to orchestrate that. So there's a surrender in that. But as far as, you know, the aftermath goes, this I think is the most radical possible question that I could live into. And, and I like to live into the most radical possible question. There was a life that I could only have with Rhea. And that life is gone and it's completely denied to me and I cannot have it. And that life was amazing. And now there is a life that I can only have without her that I never could have done had she lived. And what is that life? And do I have the courage to find that one this, and do the stuff that she would never be interested in doing? Be in relationships with people that I couldn't be in a relationship with if I was with her. Live in a way that is different from the way she would have lived to just say like, well, what is the benefit I mean, and I say that word as a, like, as a radical world, what is the benefit? And if I believe in a benevolent universe, and I do, then what am I being offered here? What can I be that I couldn't have been with her? And, and one of those things I'm finding is stronger on account of if I had a story that there was only one person in the world who I could be with and be safe in the world, then what did that make me? And you take that person away and I have to find a way to internalize and become that in my own way. If the universe loves me and wants me to grow, then of course they're going to take that person away from me, you know, and say, okay, now you find it. Now you find it in you. And I feel as though I've braided so much of Rhea's emotional DNA into mine that in my most challenging moments, I really do literally 
say what Raya would say or do what Raya would do. And that's the eternal Raya that, that is now part of me and, and makes me infinitely stronger than I ever was before. Mm. Yeah. I mean, to, to rediscover that, um, internally. Yeah. Um, is a big thing, (laughs) you know, because to a certain extent it, it tells you that, um, other people may come and go in your life. People that you love differently, but just as deeply who have like fulfill certain yearnings or needs in you and, and create that same or like their own version of that sense of of safety Mm -hmm. and whatever you needed to go to that place. And yet if you can sort of like generate it internally as well as have that complement what you've already created, you know, I wonder if there's a sense of, well, yes, it would be horrible to, to lose this person for whatever reason it is. And yet at the same time, you would be different because the loss would be of what that person brought to you mm-hmm. um, that you felt you needed um, to survive, to do what you're here to do, rather than you having that from yourself and having that person compliment it. And you're losing the complimentary part of it, sure, mm-hmm. pain there. But there's still the essence, which comes from the inside out. That's beautifully put. And and I, the only thing I would question and I said it myself but when you said it I heard it differently when you Mm. said you know to find it within yourself it's it it's also finding it finding it in the universe and letting it enter you and knowing getting to a point of knowing that you always that you were never not safe you know that you always had everything you needed that that never once have you not had exactly what you needed and that to me it feels like the ultimate in autonomy, you know, not a sense of independence of like the, in the Yankee way, the way I was raised, which was, you know, you're on your own. Right. Self-reliance. You yeah. I mean, I think that <laughs> yeah. self-sufficiency is a dangerous thing, especially in this culture. That word can be dangerous because we have a very tragic and broken and dark relationship with that idea from Calvinism and from capitalism. And, and, and some of us like me were raised in families where we were always told you're on your own. No one's ever going to take care of you which is a deeply lonely feeling. And so when I'm told by spiritual teachers to find it within myself, there's something in me that bucks, that's like, no, mm. no, I had to do that when I was four. Right. Like that feels lonely and isolating to <laughs> I me. I am done with that. Yeah, you I find it. it feels you like. do it. You do it. I want you to do it for me. I want somebody else to love me. I don't want to have to find it within myself because that w- what I've been hardwired to believe that self-sufficiency means is alone. Mm. And and it, because that's based on scarcity, you know? And so when my parents raised me to say, watch out, you got to learn how to do everything yourself. No one will ever take care of you. That's because they saw the world as a place of danger and scarcity. But what I'm experiencing as I go deeper and deeper into this post-Raya world and finding that sense of safety is, is a kind of autonomy that says, you actually don't have to worry because you'll always get what you need. You know, so like the the self-sufficiency that my parents thought was, you'll never get what you need and there'll never be enough of it and no one will give it to you. You know, the opposite of that is everything you need is right here. Put your hand out and an apple will drop into it, a piece of fruit. Like everything you need is available. You And it's not about being alone. It's about being integrated into everything. So it's the exact opposite of loneliness. It's not the self-sufficiency of the lone wolf. You know, it's the self-sufficiency of a leaf in a forest is part of all of it and doesn't have to worry, 
doesn't have to worry right. about its place because its place is is clear. It's it's just part of all of this, and everything is therefore provided. And that to me feels like, God, that would be independence. That would be real spiritual independence. And then I could really, really get down with loving people, um, because as my great teacher Byron Katie says, nobody is safe from me if I need something from them. <laughs> <laughs> So true. So the less, the Truer, more that right? I like, more I can just get it from me, from the cosmos, from the uh, soup. Then the, when I'm with you, you're safe for me because I'm not needing you to give me, take care of me, save me, fill me, soothe me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like it's um relational, but not dependent, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and it's not just relational in the context of an individual. It's sort of like everything. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's the yeah. woods. Maybe you can only be independent if you are relational. <laughs> okay, so this brings up something. I'm, I'm holding um, Liz's most recent book um, in front of me, by the way, because there's a passage. Man, I should have brought my glasses in here with me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and we're, I want to talk to you about some of this stuff in here because it, it's an awesome book. But also, there were so many um, passages and thoughts that you shared in this. And it's a novel, you know. Um, that just landed as, okay, so who's she talking about? And mm. this is just a really beautiful, expansive lesson mm. in general for everyone. There's a, I'm going to kind of start towards the back here because it touches on what we're talking on right now. And it references a character named Frank um, mm. who is no longer with the people in the book. And and you're recalling, or the, the character. Mm-hmm. Um, My narrator. Yeah, your narrator. My avatar. Um, <laughs> is, is recalling to his his daughter who um, who's trying to figure out what the nature of their relationship was many, many decades later. And, and this is what you wrote. He was so peculiar in death too. He remained so vivid. He came to me in dreams and he came to me in smells and sounds and sensations of New York itself. He came to me in the scent of a summer rain on hot macadam or in the sweet perfume of wintertime sugared nuts sold by street vendors. He came to me in the sour, milky odor of Manhattan's ginkgo trees and springtime bloom. He came to me in the budding coo of nesting pigeons and in the screaming of police sirens. He was everywhere to be found across the city, yet his absence weighed my heart with deep silence. Mm. It sounds like that's what you're describing. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Um was uh, and, and I was curious also about this character because mm-hmm. I'm curious about a lot of the characters mm-hmm. and how they relate to you and people in your life. Um, just talk to me more about that. Yeah, section. I don't want to say too much about the character because it's such a yeah, um, spoiler, right? Because <laughs> um, of so much of what the novel is about is about the mystery of this person, and we we don't really find out till the end. So I, I think I'll leave that cloak okay. in mystery so that the readers can figure it out and find it, but. This idea that the the people who are so vivid in life remain vivid in death is something that I only have learned since Rhea's death. And that the vividness shows up in the steady drumbeat of their presence and how everything reminds you of them. And there can be something very heartbreaking about that because it's like you're just seeing the world through a Rhea filter if you're me. But there's also this tremendous comfort in 
you know, uh, and one of the things that used to make me weep and weep when I imagined a world without Rhea, one of my favorite things in the world to do was to walk into a room with Rhea, Elias on my arm. She was just so, she, she was so fucking cool and she was so beautiful and she was so magnetizing. It didn't matter if like Obama and Madonna were in the room. Like Rhea was still the biggest character in that room that had the biggest personality and, and just radiated this kind of magnetism and charisma. And, and I just loved watching the world engage with her. And, you know, when I knew that she was going to be gone, one of the beliefs that caused me an enormous amount of suffering was I will never be able to walk into a room with Rhea again. But what I've learned is I actually am never again going to walk into a room without her. Um, because she's everything now, you know, she's everything in my imagination and my memory, you know, she's always, I used to have to sometimes not be with her in the real world because of the realities of, of where our bodies are and what your job is and what you're doing. And now I don't ever have to not be with her, um, because she still takes up all that space. Um, and she's in a weird way, accessible and available at all minutes of the day. Mm. You were, during this whole time also, I mean, you're a writer. Um, so this book is out now. I know one of the things that you, you've shared in the past is that you, or I guess both of you, sort of aspired for her to be there with you as you wrote a book. Yeah. Yeah, she'd always wanted that. This is one of the things I found out after after we confessed our love for each other is that she had said, you know, when she would ever allow herself, she would shut it down. But when she would ever allow herself to imagine what it would be like if we were romantic partners. And she, she said she always imagined that it would be so beautiful and romantic to live with, to live with me while I was writing a novel. Cause she knew the kind of state I get into when I'm writing a novel and to, you know, hear me get up at five o'clock in the morning and make myself a cup of tea and go into that room and shut myself in there and, and, come out later having created these worlds and she she wanted to be near that and she never got that chance because while she was dying you know her dying was a full-time job for for both her and for me and and not just her suffering but also all the things that she wanted to do before she died and it just wasn't a time for me to be writing a novel about New York City showgirls in the 1940s it just what my mind wasn't in it my heart wasn't in it I couldn't imagine caring about it and when I did have time to write I was just writing down what was going on, you know, what was going on, um, as a, as a, I say it like a chronicle mm. to make sure that I didn't lose any of it. Um, any of the, the moments, the horrible and the wonderful moments. So, so she never got to live with me as a novelist, but when it came time for me to write the book, I went and lived in the house that she had lived in and among her things. And, and I wrote the book in, in her office. And that was my way of being like, okay, babe, let's do this now. Mm. now. <laughs> so it's like she never got to live with you as an artist, but in a sense you got to live with her Yeah, as you wrote. <laughs> yeah, I did. And also my, my attention as she was dying was so much more on fostering her creativity than mine because she was a musician and a songwriter. And, um, we, you know, I just had to make sure that I got her in the studio to get those songs done and, to help her in that regard and make sure that, you know, she had put those, you know, put those songs into the ether before she left. And, and that just seemed way more important to me than making sure that I got my writing done. Yeah. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a B.O. strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash G-L-P to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash G-L-P or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. So when you start to return to your own creative process, was this... Was this book, and, and the book we're talking about is City of Girls, um, was this book something that 
was already in your mind and you had even potentially started before all of this started to unfold? Or was this something that happened later? No, I, it takes me years to create a novel, especially because I tended to write um, historical or, or yeah. period pieces that require a lot of research. And this is, this is a novel about New York City theater world in the 1940s and showgirls and playboys and playwrights and Broadway and, and um, Times Square of that, that moment in history which I've always thought was like the most impossibly glamorous moment of New York's history. And I, I wanted to be in it. So I had spent almost four years prior to Rhea getting sick, doing research for the book. Mm. And I was almost at the point where I was about to start writing it when she got sick. And then I put it away and, and I truly thought I may never write it. I couldn't imagine caring about it. I couldn't imagine who gives a shit. Rhea's dying. Who cares about this book or anybody in it or any of the work I had done on it? Like it just didn't care. And then very shortly after she died, again, you know, I spend a lot of my life just following commands from the mothership is the best way I can explain it. The great magnet in the sky, whatever it is that, that tells me what to do, told me to do this and told me that the very best thing that I could possibly do for my own recovery and my own healing was to throw myself into a really big, ambitious, creative project that had nothing to do with death and dying except for the passage that you just read, um, which God did, did manage to slip in there, but, but that was all about life and sex and exuberance and promiscuity and recklessness and wildness and fun and champagne cocktails and, and showbiz, and that that would be what would make me okay. And whatever it was that told me to do that was absolutely correct. Yeah. It made me be okay. Did it creep in slowly or were you kind of like fairly quickly like, you know what? Oh no, I this got right on it. Also, it was due. <laughs> right, <you're> like, <laughs> I should also deadline. mention that it had a deadline. Right, I and I had flipped the switch here. Yeah, 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 I had yeah. already gotten a year's extension right, on right. the deadline because of Ray's illness. And um, and I had gotten the feeling from my publisher that uh, that was not going to be very welcomed if I had come back. But there was also a part of me that didn't want to, I didn't want to put it off for another year. I didn't want, what would I have done? I mean, I'd, I'd gone from being full-time caregiver to this somebody who was, <laughs> I should say, not the world's easiest patient. I mean, all of that sort of hugeness of character and badassery and 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 independence of Rhea also meant that she was a sucky ass patient. She just killed us. It was three of us who were taking care of us and she just murdered us. She was so hard to take care of. And um, now there's nothing, you know, now there's just this big vacancy. What do I do? And I was so, I, I wrote it fast and hard because I was so grateful to have something to occupy my time. Mm. And the wonderful thing about creativity I've always said is that your creative pursuits are such a vacation from your regular mind and your regular thoughts. And if you're lucky enough to find something that you can fall into, I could have a couple hours a day where I would forget that Rhea had died only because I would forget that Rhea had lived because I was so, I would forget everything except what I was, what I was focused on in these characters in this book. And that was just such a balm for my mind to get to be in that world instead of this one. Yeah. Do you feel like you would have written a different book had you written it two years earlier? Sure. I mean, I think I, all my books would have been very different if yeah. they were written one year but to I mean, the next. In particular, because of what happened. Um, think, how did it influence it? I think I wanted it to be lighter and more joyful because of Rhea's huh. death, because I felt that I needed pleasure and I wanted to write about pleasure because I'd been in so much pain. I think I would have been married two years earlier writing it. So I think my views on marriage would have been different than they turned out to be for the character in the book. I think that the relationship, the fun, foundational relationship in her life might've been very different if I was writing it from within a marriage um, to a man. 
So I think, yeah, I think, I think the book is funnier, weirdly, um, because it came out of that darkness and also more sexually radical and more socially radical than it would have been. Yeah. It was interesting because when I, for the first 350 pages, probably, and, and the book's like 400 something pages, I was like, I, I'm having deja vu. Like, what am I feeling right now? I haven't read another book like this. I was like, oh, I feel like I'm actually, while I was reading, I'm like, I feel like I'm in the middle of a 1950s Billy Wilder movie. Oh, great. Yay. <sighs> Thank you. That's exactly how I wanted you to feel. <laughs> well, you totally succeeded. Right. Um, it was, it was like, it was fast. It was fun. It was joyous. It was irreverent. Um, it was pushing the envelope of expectations, mm -hmm. you know, like at every turn. But the other part of it is it was also, you know, it's set in the 1940s. It's got that classical sort of like romp feel to it, mm -hmm. but it was so of the moment at the same time. Mm, of this moment. Of this moment. Tell me more. In, in terms of reflecting on, maybe not in terms of um, the way that people were living, but in terms of a lot of the social issues mm. that are sort of like at the center mm. of public conversation right mm -hmm. now, which were not then, but in the book we're all spoken to, mm -hmm. you know, um, an exploration of you know, like a woman's right, you know, mm -hmm. to experience mm -hmm. and revel in pleasure, mm -hmm. um, you know, to be in power and in control and mm -hmm. in business. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, how, when quote indiscretions happen, men and women were treated profoundly differently. Right, right. The yeah. women were banished and the men were allowed right. to keep you all know, their like, attainments. Just keep yeah. on rocking. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like the issues that were, you know, were so speak to what's going on in the mm -hmm. world right now. And so many of the things that, that I think people are addressing on a level now that haven't really been publicly addressed in a long time. Mm. Well, you know, it's funny because I started researching the book before the Me Too movement began. Yeah. And then that erupted and it was really in full eruption last year when I was writing. And it made me think do I want to alter anything about this story in light of that? And the answer was nope, <laughs> because these girls and women, in order to be viable, believable 1940s, 50s and 60s characters have to be, they can't be prematurely woke. You know, I hate, I hate historical novels where people are prematurely woke, where like the 18th century scullery maid in a novel speaks about feminist powers. If she has a you know, masters from Barnard. And, and, and I'm like, no, you can't No, you can't have these ideas yet. You can be strong and tough and willful in a way that is appropriate and accurate to what would have been possible for an illiterate scullery made in the 18th century, but you can't be talking like you're Mary Wolves, Wolves and Craft. Like you can't, you know, so, so I really wanted to make sure that these girls were, they were, they were not in a weird way. They were not consciously choosing their behavior. They were just being themselves and themselves happened to be very wild, very loose and very reckless, often without, always without considering the consequences um, in advance. And so I just had to let them continue to be that. And I had to let the men behave as men would have, um, which meant that these girls were often in danger, but they were the definition of a risky girl is that she's willing to put herself in danger in order to be sexual. Um, and, and that's the reality of how a lot of girls have lived in the past and continue to do now. So I, I wanted to tell that story, not about people being safe or politic or on the right side of social debate, but about people being messy and, and full of 
longing and lust and desire and agency and then having to to see what happens when you act like that. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And I guess that was part of my question also about whether it would have been a, a different book. And again, of course, who knows, right? But, yeah. um, you know, reflecting, um, you know, both because of what's going on sort of like in popular culture, um, but also because of what was awakened in you on a, on a very personal level, mm -hmm. the moment you heard Rhea's diagnosis and the moment you both shared how you felt with each other. Mm -hmm. But I guess to a certain extent, when you write something like this, you know, it's always just going to reflect who you are at any given moment in time. Oh yeah. And what you I want mean, to say. look, you want to write a memoir or write a novel, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, know. <laughs> because that's where it's going to, that's where I always say, you'll learn so much more about me by reading my novels than you will by reading my memoirs because I've written both. And it's not that I'm trying to shield or protect or hide anything in my memoirs. I try to be very honest and open, but we don't, you know, I'm careful and I'm aware and I'm hyper self-conscious and I'm choosing how, you know, trying to figure out how to choose how to present myself. Whereas in a novel, I'm every single one of these characters, yeah. you know? Um, and so it's, basically like my fingernails and my DNA and my hair are all over that crime scene. Like, you know, you can see a lot about me in that book. And so I, I've, 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 I have heard it said that, that every novel is a work of um, nonfiction and, and every memoir is a, is a work of fiction. You gotta write it. <laughs> it would be funny to sort of like go through and say, okay, so like the friends who've known you at different parts of your life, like who do you see Liz as and what characters in what ways, like depending on when you've known her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like categorize it that way. Yeah, right? they could go through this book and be like, oh, uh, like, yeah, there's there, Celia. There, there, yep. And right. here she's, you know, yeah, right. exactly. Um, and here she's Aunt Peg. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I've definitely been every person in that book. Right. So when you turn this in, right? So this has been a, a, an amazing thing, right? You write this thing, you're researching it four years before, you, you take a break, you hit pause, taking care of Raya. And then um, when Raya's gone, this becomes your, your bomb. This mm -hmm. is a thing where you dive in and it's consuming you and you get to just turn on the creative thing and absorb yourself in it, mm -hmm. right? Then you write the manuscript, you know, you go through the stuff with your editor, you hand it in, it's accepted, mm -hmm. right? So you don't have to work on this anymore. Mm -hmm. You wake up the next morning. <laughs> yeah, now what? Yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of day one in a way. You know, I've had this um, cushion where I got to take a reprieve. I mean, I guess you wake up and you just see what sort of world do you live in now, you know? Um, where are we today? What, what do we got? And, um, and I did some traveling with some friends. Um, I'm turning 50 this year and it was really important to me this year to make sure that I spent time on traveling journeys with every person who I love. Um, so instead of having like a big 50th birthday party, I went to Mexico with my best friend from ninth, from fourth grade. Ah, that's great. Um, you know, and, and I went to Hawaii with another friend and, um, I'm, about to go to Europe with another friend and, um, to just, so to share, um, time with people. I was just, obviously there's something about walking that close to death too, that makes you look around and be like, who is precious to me? Who's left? Um, what can I do? What can I do unto them? Um, and what can I do with them? Um, so that we don't wait till someone has the cancer diagnosis before we take that trip to Mexico. And we just, why don't we just do it now? Um, so I think I, I, a lot of that was a lot of planning of that, a lot of kind of excitement around that. And then a lot of just navigating the landscape of grief. I mean, grief is, a, is an energy field that I've said has a great deal in common with love. In one way, it's because 
as the adage goes, grief is the the cost. It's the price that you pay for love. And the loss that comes is, you know, that pain is because you loved. It's kind of a badge of honor of love to be able to grieve. But also it has something to do with love in that I have no control over it. (laughs) Um, I have no power over it. When it comes, it hits and it hits hard and, and it will make you buckle to your knees. And um, it's what my friend and Rhea's ex-wife, Gigi, um, and I call a carve-out moment. It's just a carve-out. You just stand there and you get carved out by it and you just, you just let it, you just let it carve you out because it's bigger than you and it's stronger than you. And resistance is how you actually get hurt. You know, so you just stand there like, like a rock at the seashore and you just get pounded by that wave and let it shape you into whatever it's going to shape you into because that's the nature of the geology of grief. And, um, and so I was really, I would say a lot of what I've done over the last 18 months is, is kind of practicing nonviolent, non-resistance to grief. Um, that, okay, oh, here it is. I have like two seconds to hit the ground. It's coming, you know, and then just let it roll through you, um, like a weather, like a weather front and, just let it do what it's going to do to you for as long as it is and then stand up off the floor and wash your face and go have lunch. You know, <laughs> Be like, I guess I survived that one. Okay. You know, what's next? Yeah. You've been public in a lot of ways for a fairly long time, mm-hmm. you know, sharing in a very transparent way. Does the last four years for you change the way that you approach or does it change where the line in the sand is about what's public and what's private or about when Mm. it's public, Mm. how either completely raw and open and honest you are or Mm. how, how much you feel like you need to keep as your own at any given moment in time? I don't have a rule. I don't have any rules. I was about to say about that, but then I was thinking <laughs> in general. <laughs> right. It's like, eh, let's just make it a blanket uh, statement there. Any rules. Right. Um, I don't have any rules about that because how in the world am I going to know in advance what that boundary is or what that, what that line in the sand is? Um, I like learning in public and growing in public because I think that it's a service because the people who are kind enough to learn in public in front of me have helped me enormously to change my own life. You know, and the, the turnaround time for how long it is between when I have a revelation or an epiphany and I want to share it can be anywhere from a few minutes to a few days, but it's, it's there. And, and, and if I don't share it, it feels burdensome on me. I think in the same way that any talent that you have that you don't use becomes a burden, any, any information that you have about how to survive this journey on earth that you don't share as a burden. It's a, it's a burden on you because it's meant to be out there. So I just follow my instincts on it. And, and I couldn't even possibly tell you what that is. It's, it's intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I seem, I don't know. And I, I, I guess what has changed is that I care a lot less. You know, once you've lost somebody at, to the, who was important to you to the degree that Ray was to me, I kind of like, I'm not afraid. I mean, I'll throw something out there if I'm wrong. If it turns out to be, have been a mistake, then okay. Well, it's not someone dying. Right. <laughs> no. 
Like, so people disagree with me on oh Facebook. Oh God, wow. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. die. You know, like it's just not, it's not a human life. It's not a human death. It doesn't have that much weight. Therefore, you know, share it, throw it out there and, and, and see what happens. Um, or don't. <laughs> That's also fine. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's that it's a, it's a whole different context, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like now you know what the certain bar is. It's interesting. It's probably not a lot of people know the podcast actually started two years earlier than the podcast as video, and the first interview I ever did for for that one was um, the behavioral economist and Duke professor Dan Ariely. Oh, he's he's, he's amazing, like such an incredible yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, and 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 probably even if you're familiar with his work, a lot of people don't know that. Dan is actually very badly burned on something like 70% of his body when yeah. he was 18 or something like that in Israel. Some sort of ceremony and oil exploded all over him. And he was in the burn ward for two years in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about this. I remember the conversation. It's why I'm bringing it up, which is that, you know, he's like, I have a visual, physical, sensory reminder every day of my life. He's like, I'm good. But I have this reminder every day of my life of as bad as it can get. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it serves a certain constructive purpose. Mm. Talk about someone who laughs a lot, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> like, talk about someone who has walked through tremendous darkness yeah. and, and has great light giddiness in yeah. him. I mean, that's my favorite thing about him is how joyful he is. You know, this is something that my friend Rob Bell, do you yeah. know Rob Bell? Yeah, that he calls the light after the darkness after the light. And the way he explains it is that there's a lightness that people have that is about innocence and naivete and like top 40 pop music mm. and let's go to the beach. Yeah. And um, and there's that kind of, you know, when you're around people who are light in that way, it's almost like L-I-T-E light, you know, but it looks like exuberance and fun and good times and, you know, and then after that, inevitably in people's lives, there comes the darkness and some people don't ever emerge out of that. You know, they, they remain that, you know, there's that adage that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Sometimes for some, for sometimes what doesn't kill you just fucks you up and leaves you just a wreck. And, and some people can't get through that for whatever reason or, or haven't yet, you know, um, and they're in that darkness. And then there are the people who have passed through that to the light that's on the other side of that darkness. And those people are radiant with something that is what, what it's like to be around Dan, where you can't accuse that of being shallow, laughter, giggling, enjoyment. That is somebody who has walk, literally walked through fire. Yeah, he knows. And um, and and because of that, there's a resonance to the joy, and it's the resonance of such a miracle that we're still here. You know, um, and and the way Rob described it is that he once saw Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama meet at a conference and they're old friends apparently. And, and he said, you want to know what those two guys do when they meet and they run into each other? Cause he watched the moment that they ran into each other. They bump bellies up against each other a bunch of times and then they just start giggling. And he said, these are two of the most like, and these are not two people that you could accuse of being frivolous or not understanding right, right. human suffering, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> but they've, they are the light on the, they are the light on the other side of the darkness, on the other side of the light, you know, and, um, and, and, Boy, when you're around somebody like that, do you feel it? Do you feel the grace? Mm. Do you feel like you're there yet? Um, depends on the day. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I hesitate to say it because yeah. I, I, I don't want to tempt fate. I don't want to say I've been through my greatest darkness yet. Yeah. You know, 
my greatest darkness could start this afternoon. I, I don't have the slightest idea what they've got in store for me. You know, and I had a, a friend uh, who was a, uh, I wrote about for, for GQ years ago. And he had, had, as a 20 year old, he'd been hit by a bus and lost his leg. And then he overcame it and he became a motivational speaker and a, and a one-legged athlete. And he routinely won, you know, beat people in triathlons and Ironman who were able-bodied. And, you know, he just became this kind of superhero, this one-legged superhero. And he really felt like he was in the light on the other side of the darkness and that he was that guy. And then he was in a, in a triathlon and he got hit again by another car and he became a quadriplegic. And, and then he had to go through the real darkness, you know, and he said, you know, be careful of thinking that your karma's over. <laughs> you know, the story is ongoing. And um, and he his what he came away with, and he was by the time I met him, very much the light on the other side of that darkness. And he said, you know, they they had to do this to me twice to get my attention. You know, I didn't get the lessons out of it the first time that I needed to. I still was in my ego. I still thought I was champion guy, and and that it was all about achievement and success. And and it, only with the humility of the second accident. Have I been able to find grace? Mm. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com So here's a sort of a perpetual question with me around this. Do you think there's any way to get to that second light without having to go through the darkness? I hate the word cheat and hack, but, um, you know, um, I've tried them all. Like, can you, <laughs> you know, like, can, tried them all. can you get, you know, like, can you get to that place without being brought to your knees in a profound way? 
Because I'd love to believe you can, but I haven't yet really seen the example of it. Well, that would presume that there's such a thing as a human life that's never brought to its knees. And mm. I've never had that. I've never experienced that life True. yet. Have you? I haven't witnessed that in anybody. I mean, I've, I've seen it, but I haven't seen somebody, you know, circling back to the beginning of our conversation, who is able to live in those same eyes, those, that same joy, that same like state of bliss. Yeah without having been to that place before no, at some point. Like, but I also haven't seen anybody who hasn't experienced extraordinary loss, suffering, yeah. and pain. You know, it appears to be the contract. I don't understand, you know, I, I think a, a good use of it is transformative. Um, let's use this to become better human beings. That I think that's a really great way to see suffering and pain. You don't have to see it that way, but you'll still have suffering and pain. And you know, without catharsis, without catharsis and transformation, all of your pain is just wasted suffering mm -hmm. that you just got for no reason. So you might as well use it, spend it, spend it to buy en enlightenment, spend it to buy wisdom, spend it to buy humility and compassion. Like, you know, use it. <laughs> they, they gave it to you. Um, I don't know if that's the, the, the master plan of the universe, but I think it's a very graceful way to, to, to interact with suffering and pain. Um, and you will have it. I mean, it's, it, the first noble truth. Um, and I think what you can do is instead of living in fear and hiding in your bedroom from suffering and, you know, which it will find you anyway, suffering knows where you live. It knows your home address. And when it's your turn to suffer, it will come and knock on your door and you'll be aware that it's your turn to suffer because it will be happening. And it knows your real email address. It knows your real, exactly. <laughs> it knows where you live. So given that that is the case, then I do think that a very productive and to yourself generous use of your time would be to start to embody practices that have been proven to help mitigate suffering so that when it comes, you're not unarmed. You know? Now, that doesn't mean you still won't have to be in pain, but it might mean that you'll have a perspective and a, and a practice and a ritual that will hold you safely through that. That's probably as close to a hack as you can get. Yeah. Um, but that means showing up for the work of, of um, yourself. I, I so agree with that. I, I see so many people spending so much of their energy trying to protect against mm -hmm. every eventuality that may cause pain mm -hmm. or suffering mm -hmm. rather than investing that same energy or even a portion of it in building practices and skills that would allow them to find some level of increased equanimity when it does in fact arrive. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, it will, it's first noble truth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and um, yeah, I, I wonder what would happen if some of those practices were taught to a lot more people, sort of like just as a matter of fact. I just love what life. you just said about, you know, where is your time going? Is it is your time going and trying to remain safe in a world that has proven itself again and again to be unsafe? Or is, and, and appears to be, not just that it's unsafe, you know, because we fuck up. It appears to be sort of natural law that it's unsafe. You know, there's that wonderful satirical headline in the Onion newspaper that says Earth's death rate holding steady at 100%. You know, it's like, <laughs> there's also just natural law to go up against. If not that you'd be harmed by your neighbor, Some, something's going to get you. So, so do you spend your life trying to be safe from that? Or do you spend your life learning how to help yourself when you're in danger, you know, um, with, with again, practices that have been proven 
over millennia to be of great service to people when, when they're in that state. Um, I think that's the best readiness that you can have. And I also, I can't remember, I wish I could remember who it was, but I heard an interview once with a guy who studied resilience. And, and one of the things that he was fascinated with was how is it that two people can go through the exact same trauma and then this person ends up okay. Yeah. And maybe they walk with a limp, but they're okay. Right. Post-traumatic growth. Yeah. Yeah. Versus yeah. trauma. Yeah. And this person's not. And, um, and so he spent a lot of time studying the resilient. Um, who are the people in this community who also lost everything, who also went through the genocide, who also went through the abuse, who also went through the, the addiction, you know, had all the same terrible things happen to them, but then somehow found the resilience to not bounce back, but to stand up again and reclaim in a kind of sacred way themselves and, and their life and to re-embrace the world on the world's terms. And what he came up with, and again, I'm so sorry if you're listening to this, sir, I wish I could remember who you were, but that there are three things that you need in order to be resilient. And one is you need to believe that life has meaning, that life itself has meaning. The second is you have to believe that your life has a particular meaning within that. And the third thing you need is community. Community. You need to feel that you belong somewhere. And, and what he said is don't wait for the hurricane to go knock on your neighbor's door and ask for help. <laughs> um, build that before. Like that's a wonderful way to also be safe when the wave comes is to know that you have people and that you've cultivated people who will take care of you. How do you do that? By becoming someone who takes care of people. Um, and that's how you cultivate community by, by giving, um, by giving until trust is built. And, and then you're, and then you know that, oh, this is going to hurt, but I've got arms around me. Yeah. And, I've, and I've, I've spoken about this on social media at times where I've talked about like incredible friends that I've had, or, or, you know, I've shared stories of amazing acts of friendship and, and, and it, interestingly, almost invariably in the comments, somebody who is feeling very sorry for themselves will say, um, you're lucky I don't have any friends like that. And I always want to say, so be a friend like that, you know, be a friend like that to someone. If you don't have anybody who's generous and loving and, and full of grace in your life, then go be that in somebody else's life. That's how it works. Um, it's not about what you get. It's about what can you contribute to this relationship and what can you bring as an offering? That's how community is built. It's built on, on the offerings of the generous and the loving. Mm. I love that. Um, talking about having people, um, you recently shared, um, I guess a pretty cool full circle relationship moment um, mm. to a certain extent. Um, so one of, Rhea's oldest friends, Simon, mm -hmm. um, is somebody who you shared mm -hmm. <laughs> not too long ago publicly. Again, um, you were in a relationship with. Mm -hmm. How does that sort of, how does that feel to you? And how does it feel to you to share that? And I'm curious why share it? Well, why share it is an easier question yeah. to answer. It's, it makes my life easier to a certain extent because I do live in the public eye and he was going to be with me a lot. Right. And I would so much rather tell you who someone is than have you guess. Um, <laughs> and also I just feel like 
let me just tell you, let me just make the introductions here and then we can all go back to our business, you know, and, and I, you, you'll notice or, or not notice, depending on how carefully you looked that I haven't said anything further about it since then. Mm. Um, and, and so for me, it was a way to allow myself to walk freely through the world with someone, answer whatever the, the, I don't want to say nosy questions are because I, I think they're very natural questions that, that people would have. And then just say, okay, and now I'm going to um, go have this very private story with somebody. Um, and that is, that's how I chose to do it. You know, I didn't have to, it was a decision I made. Do I say something about this? Do I not say something about this? The other reason I wanted to say something about it is that anytime I wrote about this in that post, but anytime that I can normalize your life by showing you my life, because my life tends to not follow normal lines. So I know that people carry an enormous amount of shame over some of the things that this love story with Simon would have brought up. You know, um, have you lost your spouse or your partner or your lover and now time has passed and you find yourself attracted to somebody else? Is that okay? Let me be the one to say yes. Um, if you're worried that that's not okay, look at me here. Let me show you how I'm doing this. Um, were you with a, somebody of one gender and then you're going to be with somebody of another gender and you're wondering if that's okay. Here I am to let you know that that's okay. <laughs> Whatever I can do to make you feel less broken, wrong, and weird, I'm more than happy to put my life out in public for that. And, you know, are you falling in love and you feel like you're 16 again, even though you're 50 and because you are so full of insecurity and uncertainty and and excitement and fear, and you think you should know how to do this, and you don't. Hello, friend. It's gonna be okay. <laughs> Falling in love at fifty feels exactly the same way as it did at sixteen. You know, navigating a new relationship is is always that. You know, um. So that was my secondary reason. My first reason was, let me just clear this so that I can just move about the world freely. But but also, I know that my that other people's lives have these elements in them as well. You know, um, so let's talk about it. Mm. A couple of years ago, a mutual friend of ours, Glennon Doyle, was here. Mm. And um, this was after her uh, book came out. And, and I guess a lot of people may or may not know that very often when a book publishes, it's actually years after the story in the book uh -huh. has been told. Uh -huh. um, and I was hanging out with Glennon and we we're talking about relationships, as you do, <laughs> especially yeah. with Glennon. And I asked her... Um, we started talking about the fact that she was in a relationship at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and she's, she was always very forward-facing mm -hmm. about everything that went on, you know, especially in the book, very detailed, very forward-facing, about the most intimate things. And she said, I don't want to talk about it now. Mm. <laughs> you know, it didn't take long for yeah. you know, like us to realize who it was and that it was Abby and right, like this beautiful right. marriage now. Um, but it was interesting because she kind of said that she's like, for now, for this window, Right. I just want it to be mine. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I, that may change in a big way in the not too deep, but right now, yeah. I just need to own this. It's mm -hmm. just me and this one other person. I, and so with me. Yeah. You know, beyond what I've told you yeah. here, which is exactly what I said in that Instagram post a couple months ago. Yeah. I haven't said another thing about it and don't plan to. Yeah. <laughs> Completely respect that. Completely um, respect yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but I also respected that people wonder and have questions, but it's like, oh no, this is, this is so fresh. And, um, let me, let me find my way through this. Mm. 
so as we sit here today um, in this container of the Good Life Project, I asked you the same question four or five years ago. Um, but I'm going to ask it again. Mm. So if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, mm. what comes up? Um, I love that I can't remember what I said last time, and I'll ask you after if you remember. I think it's to know that you are loved. And in my mind when I said that, it's a capital L, meaning by the divine, um, by what created you, and not a small L that is dependent upon other people um, or other things working out in a way that you want them to. It's very nice to be small L loved if you can get it. <laughs> Good work if you can find it. But it's not as important to me as knowing that I'm capital L loved. That whatever made me wanted me and wanted me and wanted me to be here and will always take care of me, whether I'm alive or dead, whether I'm in pain or in joy. And I think if you've got that in your pocket, you can walk around knowing that, like capital K-N-O, like knowing it, like really living in the knowledge and the knowing that you are loved and that there is nothing that you could ever do to lose that. And, you know, that is sometimes I think I have no value. I'm just loved. You know, and I, and I, I love to offer that to people as an alternative to the American purpose-driven life that says that you don't have any value unless you're serving a purpose and what is your purpose and all of us are born with a purpose and you have to find your purpose and then you have to change the world with that purpose. All of that just makes the tendons in my neck stand out and gives me hives of anxiety that I'm doing it wrong or that I might never get there or that I had a purpose but I failed and should have been this one. You know, all of that is just so tremendously anxiety producing. It's so, so inhumane to teach people that that is what point of their life is, is to earn somehow their presence on this earth through purpose and through what they contribute. And it better be good. It's just so mean. The reality is that you are not required to have a purpose at all. That's what it means to be loved. You are not required. Nothing is required of you. Nothing is required of you. You are part of all of this and couldn't not be if you tried. And that I think is real peace. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.